This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Norman Swan here with this week's Health Report podcast. Today, how worried should we be about the spread of anti-immunisation mythology on social media? An interesting study of bots. What's a bot? Stay tuned. Tegan Taylor will be in with a study of high-intensity interval training, which had a result that people didn't expect. How to look after your cloth mask so that it stays safe. And new findings on what goes on in the immune system when a SARS-CoV-2 infection turns into COVID-19. And don't forget to keep on sending in your questions and comments for Tegan and me to answer. The email address is healthreport at abc.net.au. Some of the interesting questions that we'll get to later on in the podcast are on breast screening, antioxidants, and how to get benefits of a Mediterranean diet when you've got food intolerance. But let's get back to bots and vaccine myths. Important as we head into next year when hopefully COVID vaccines will need to be administered to a large proportion of the population of Australia. An Australian study has looked at 53,000 Twitter users to see what role bots play in disseminating misleading messages about vaccines. Adam Dunn from the University of Sydney was the lead author. Welcome to The Health Report, Adam. And thanks for having me. Just, just so go for the uh, boomers listening. Um, okay, boomer. Um, what is a bot? Well, I guess a bot on Twitter is just really an account that's not run by a human. Um, it's usually automated messages, messages that are trying to sell something or convince people of things. So it's short for robot. Well, in a sense, yes, but not a physical robot to just be a, a piece of software that's tweeting for you. And how do you recognise that uh, a particular Twitter account is a bot? Uh, that's actually a complicated question. So there are some some methods that are available, some tools that are available to just sort of check to, to see whether or not something is a bot. But in general, the way that we look to see whether something is a bot <clears throat> is whether or not they post in really weird, uh, infrequent or very frequent times, um, the kinds of things that they say. Uh, and um, kind of other signals and other little tags that we can see to, to check that something is a bot or not. So if they're, if they're tweeting at 3 a.m., there's a bit, something a bit suspicious. Yeah, that's right. Or if they're tweeting 100 times an hour at 3 a.m., that's probably another reason to be a bit, a bit suspicious. And do, are they, I mean, what's, I mean, if you looked at the, the universe of bots, I mean, what proportion of them are mm -hmm. commercial where they're trying to flog a product rather than to flog information? Oh, I would uh, – look, I don't know the answer to that, but I would imagine that the vast majority of them are likely to be commercial, um, trying to sell something or trying to amplify a particular story from the news, something like that. Yeah, like the Russian interference in the United States. And how different is a bot from a troll? Ah, another good question. So trolls are really um, the boomers. You know, the boomers are just you know, adhering to this conversation now so they can talk as if they understand <laughs> Twitter. Carry on. Yeah, that's right. So, so really, I mean, a troll is a, is a person, um, and often people are labelled as a troll um, if they're there to provoke someone or they're really just trying to be just mean. I mean, I always imagine as a troll as as uh, someone who's you know hiding under a bridge, ready to jump out and try and persuade you of something. Now, why did you decide to talk about look at bots in terms of vaccine misinformation? Oh, that's a very good question. So, so. 
There has been a fair bit of research in the past where people have looked at um, bots and trolls and tried to understand why, um, you know, how much how much they're posting and what they're posting about, especially in relation to fake news, to misinformation, and also to things that are kind of anti-vaccine. So in the past, we've seen a lot of research that's looked at anti-vaccine posts, and, and they like to do things like counting up how often they appear on Twitter or looking at how frequently bots and trolls post about certain issues. Um, those kinds of studies can be useful for looking at examples of misinformation or trying to understand a bit more about this kind of group of vocal critics that, that are anti-vaccine all the time, but they, but they don't really tell us about what real people actually see or if, if it affects their attitudes so, and behaviours. So they're, they're measuring volume rather than impact. Uh, that's exactly right. And so the aim of the work that, that my team and I did recently was to try and flip the way that researchers look at vaccine misinformation and vaccine critical information on social media platforms to try and look at the information consumers rather than the information producers. And how did you do this? Uh, well, this is the more complicated and more interesting thing. So this is something new that we did. Um, and what we did was, as you mentioned before, was to randomly sample a group of around 53,000 Twitter users, all from the United States. So there was nothing special about what these users said or who they were, just that these were all real humans and that they were spread out across the whole of the United States. Why America? So What's what wrong with did... Australian Twitter users? Oh, there's nothing wrong with Australian Twitter users. It just happens to be that there's a lot more users in the United States. Right. Um, and uh, it's one of the things that we focused on in the past. I have to say, though, when we've done studies in Australia, um, equivalent to the studies we've done in the United States, especially on things like human papillomavirus vaccines, we typically find very similar results, just at a smaller scale. So when you looked at these 53,000 Twitter users, what did you find? Well, what we did was we monitored what these kind of Twitter users um, these these typical Twitter users, and we looked at who they followed for around three years to try and inf in, to try and estimate their vaccine-related information consumption. And so we were specifically interested in looking at how much of what people see and engage with on Twitter is vaccine critical, and then of course how much of it comes from bots. And it turns out that people on Twitter see lots of information about vaccines. A typical user from the United States would have seen around 750 tweets about vaccination in those three years from 2017 to 2019, but just 27 of those tweets would have been vaccine critical and none of them would have come from bots. Really? So despite what you might have heard, people are seeing lots of vaccine information on Twitter, but very little of it is anti-vaccine and almost none of it comes from bots. So you can't blame Twitter for an anti-vaccine movement. So what? So what's going on there? The bots just are mis, misdirected or are they just going into the ether and not connecting with people? I think it's the latter. I think what happens is that um, bots just don't have many followers. And it's related to um, what you mentioned before around trying to look at whether or not we count up the volume of things that people are posting or whether we look at the kinds of stuff that people are actually exposed to. And so there's lots of people out there that are kind of like searching for misinformation and looking at hashtags. And, and some of them are even amplifying harmful content by attacking them directly online, drawing attention to them on national television. But I, but I honestly, I think that this, this focus on the information producers is really diverting attention away from what we should be focusing on. So what should we be focusing on if we want to combat vaccine hesitancy? Well, this is the interesting thing. So you mentioned, you know, um, Russian disinformation and, you know, those sorts of things before. And like it's, it's easy and it's kind of convenient to, to look for groups of others 
to blame when we see things that, that can cause harm growing in our communities. It's almost like exciting to assume that there's some organized campaign of disinformation from a foreign power. It, you know, it's kind of exciting to think that trolls are jumping out from under bridges to try and persuade us not to vaccinate our kids. But this is massively overstating a problem that's that's probably inconsequential. And so it's it's probably much less exciting but I think we should shift the focus towards the people who might be susceptible to health misinformation and to help come up with ways to empower them. So this includes education on digital literacy and creating the kinds of tools that they might need to avoid sort of soaking up this misinformation or passing it along. So in short, again, you know, we need to be focusing on information consumers rather than the information producers. Well, when you have that strategy together, Adam, we'll have you back on. <laughs> Sounds good. Associate Professor, thanks very much for joining us. Associate Professor Adam Dunn is Head of Biomedical Informatics and Digital Health at the University of Sydney. And one of the authors of that used to be on the Health Report, Marika Steffens. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Today in Victoria, they implemented new rules about face masks, moving away from unreliable face coverings, including flimsy scarves, to more robust designs such as cloth masks. But cloth masks have been a bit controversial, with one randomised trial in health workers in Vietnam a few years ago suggesting they increased the risk of transmitting respiratory infections. One of the original authors, Professor Ryan McIntyre of the Kirby Institute, has led a reanalysis of this study and found that one of the problems was how reusable cloth masks were cleaned. Welcome back to the health report, Rainer. Thanks, Norman. Just remind us about the original study and its findings, because it was an Australian study with uh, Vietnamese collaborators. Yeah, it was funded by the Australian Research Council. We were doing a lot of work in Asia at the time and noticed that everyone was wearing cloth masks in the hospitals there. And none of the guidelines, not WHO, not any of the country guidelines, even mentioned cloth masks. And we thought, you know, that's a big gap in evidence. So we did an RCT and it's still the only RCT of cloth masks. Um, <clears throat> and it did show that by the intention to treat analysis, which is you analyze each arm exactly as it was randomized, uh, no matter what people did in those actual arms, um, showed that the people in the cloth mask arm had a higher rate of infection than the surgical mask users and the control arm. And, of course, no one paid much attention to that study because, as I said, the guidelines didn't even mention cloth masks until this pandemic. Um, and then um, everyone started looking for evidence, particularly in the US when P uh, healthcare workers ran out of PPE and were being asked to wear cloth masks at work in uh, March and April. So we started getting flooded with queries from health workers saying things like, um, is it better I don't wear any mask if I have to treat a patient with COVID? I can't get a surgical mask or an N95. They're telling me to wear a cloth mask. Is it better I wear no mask? Which totally, you know, um, terrified me, the thought of health workers even thinking that it was okay to go in and treat a patient without a mask at all. Um, so in, in that instance, our advice was, you know, if, if, you, if you are not given adequate PPE, do not work. You know, it's a breach of your occupational health and safety um, obligations. But, you, um, but, so you, but you have subsequently shown, just sort of to tie the knot here, before we get to the, this reanalysis, that in fact, if you wear cloth masks, you do prevent aerosol spread to quite a significant extent. Yes. So we looked at the source control issue, which is where a mask prevents an infected person from outward emission of virus-laden part particles. And we did some visualisation um, experiments with no mask, one-layered cloth mask, two-layered. 
and then a three-layered surgical mask. And basically they um, reduce the emissions more and more in that order. So um, one layer does does uh, do a bit better than no mask. Um, two layers does better than one layer and three-layered surgical mask does even better. Um, and when you look at that visually, uh, you know, where you can see droplets that you wouldn't be able to see with the naked eye, it's quite striking the difference it makes. Um, anyway, back to Vietnam and the reanalysis of yeah. the study. So, um, you know, in the original study, we did report on the washing and more than 90% of people said they wash their mask every day. So we reported that and we didn't look at it in any more detail, but we hypothesized what could be the, you know, we on a, on a scientific level, you have to think that having some kind of physical barrier should help to some degree. Um, so what could be the factors that have resulted in the cloth mask looking so bad in this study? One could be that the um, the cloth masks were allocated to more high-risk wards. So we looked at that in this reanalysis and that wasn't the case. That didn't explain it. Another explanation could be that people who said they washed their mask every day actually didn't and they didn't want to tell us, so they lied. Um, and a third explanation was about the actual quality of the washing. So most people washed their hand, a mask by hand, but uh, um, some washed it in the hospital laundry, so in, in proper washing machines. And what we found was that the people who hand-washed the mask had double the risk of infection than the people who machine-washed it, and the machine-washed mask users um, were as well protected as someone wearing a surgical mask. So what, so was, what, what was the difference between hand-washing and machine-washing? Um, probably the the thoroughness of the wash as well as the temperature, maybe the use of soap. I don't know if it's possible sometimes that um, people who hand wash their masks didn't use soap or didn't use enough soap. But the temperature of the water, you know, you can't go above a certain temperature without burning your fingers. And WHO recommends you need to wash masks, cloth masks in 60 degrees Celsius, 60 to 90 degrees. Um, most washing machines have the ability to wash at 60 degrees. Um, so probably it's a combination of the temperature, the thoroughness of the wash and the duration of washing. So most cycles go for about an hour, whereas if you hand wash it, you might just, you know, give it a rub for so, 30 seconds. So the message for today and SARS-CoV-2, because this was done before SARS, is yeah. machine wash at 60 degrees. Yeah, yeah. Get yourself a mask that can be thrown in the wash and have at least two and throw it in the washing machine every day so that you have a clean mask, a clean laundered mask each day, it will definitely um, reduce the risk of a contaminated mask. So that was the other part of the study. We tested the masks for viruses, and we found viruses on the surfaces of the both the surgical mask and the cloth mask. But in the study, people got a new surgical mask each day. They didn't have to reuse them because they're disposable products, but the cloth mask users had to reuse them. Rhina, thank you for clarifying all that. It's a pleasure. Raina McIntyre is Professor of Bio Global Biosecurity and Head of the Biosecurity Research Programme at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. One of the big debates in exercise and its health benefits is the extent to which intensity matters. There are suggestions that high-intensity interval training, for example, achieves similar fitness outcomes to more steady but longer duration moderate exercise. But what about their relative effects on living longer? 
Everything we think we know about exercise and longevity actually comes from observational studies. Now, those are studies that track people over a long period of time, but where you can't prove cause and effect, only association. That to prove cause and effect, you need a randomised trial. Well, a new study from Norway may be the first lengthy randomised controlled trial into exercise and the risk of premature death. And Tegan Taylor's been you looked, looking into it. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. So what did they look at? So they had, they, it's a big study and it's pretty ambitious. It's um, about 1,500 people in their 70s in Norway in, in a town called Trondheim and they followed them for five years. And so they had these people, they, they were looking at a lot of different outcomes, but they've assigned these people into three different groups. So some were asked to do high intensity interval training twice a week. So that's your sort of high, you know, get your heart rate right up to about 90% of its sort of maximum. And then the next exercise group was asked to do moderate intensity continuous training twice a week. And then they had their control group who were just sort of told to follow the National Physical Activity Guidelines. And that's sort of a bit of a a throwaway comment um, when you're designing a study normally. But in this particular study, the researchers hit a bit of a pothole because the control group actually followed the instructions and were active and they actually ended up (laughs) exactly Uh, they ended up being more active than the moderate intensity exercise group which has made it really hard for them to tease out the results of this study it's notorious in risk factor studies is that the whole thing improves and you've got no difference between the intervention group and the control group yeah, I know. And the whole point of this study was to have sort of like a randomised control trial, like a, a higher standard of evidence than what we've had before. Um, so interesting and kind of funny and, like you say, very Scandinavian. But that's not without some interesting findings. And basically, when you tease apart all of this sort of thing, you're going to be shocked to know that exercise is good for you. Yep. <laughs> uh, that every, like they had a, The whole group had a, a lower mortality rate than the average population at that time. So whether they were, were control or in intensity interval training or in <laughs> moderate exercise. Exactly. And they were healthier to start off with because that's how they qualified to be in the study. But the people who did do high intensity interval training had the best outcomes overall. And that, but it wasn't significant. And just remind us what they were doing. Was it on a, on a bike, you know, 10 seconds on, 20 seconds off, that sort of thing? How, how, how were they doing their hit? They didn't go into a lot of detail, but they did work. They worked out in groups. So the people who were in the high intensity interval training uh, group asked to be sort of paired or partnered with other friends who were in that that group. So that probably, like one of the big things is that they followed these people for five years and they stayed, like the majority of them stayed in the study. And so there's adherence, this consistency kind of comes through. And um, and one of, the, one of the people who I spoke to who was involved in the study from here in Australia said that they probably, the the fact that they were working out with friends probably helped them to stay consistent with it. But in terms of basically they were asked to exercise to the, the 90% of their peak heart rate um, in the in the high-intensity interval training group and then the other group was sort of 70%. And uh, so how useful is the study then if there wasn't a, a statistical difference? It is hard. Like this particular study, this is the first, I believe, the first paper to come out of this really big study, which they're called Generation 100. I think they're planning on following these people until they're in their hundreds. So we're talking like decades down the track. Um, But it's not not useful. So like I said, uh, the high intensity interval training was, um, had the highest effect and all of the group's improve their fitness over a time in their life when you're usually losing fitness. So I've got, um, I spoke to Maria Fiatori-Singh from the University of Sydney, and this is what she had to say about it. Over five years, their aerobic fitness actually improved in all three groups, which 
is completely contrary to what you know. And in biology, you get less and less mm. time, basically. And so even if you kept it the same, that would be a major coup. But they actually increased all three groups, their aerobic fitness, and the highest increase was in the HIT group over five years. So as they go from 72 to 77, they're more fit. Amazing, right? And there's no drug that does that. There's no, you know, there's, there is nothing that can make you fitter other than exercise. And that's Mia, uh, Maria Fiataroni Singh, who from the University of Sydney, interestingly, when she was at Tufts in Boston, did a study of weight training um, in, elder, in the frail elderly, people in their 90s in uh, aged care facilities and found that it got them back on their feet. So she's been looking at this for many years. It's interesting that you say that, you say that Norman, because Maria was keen to point out the difference between high intensity and high impact and weight bearing and weight training and that people kind of conflate these things together and that especially older people are sometimes a bit scared of the idea of high intensity training because they think that they've got to run and they might not want to do that because of arthritis or incontinence and it's not the only way to get your heart rate up to those levels. Any message for younger people? Yeah, I mean, part of the study design here is that it's looking at mortality as a measure and morbidly, uh, it it's cheaper to study people over a shorter period of time. You know, if, if you're studying older people, then you get to that mortality measure earlier. But they said that this this can be generalised. So you don't have to be older to benefit from exercise and high-intensity interval training. And death wasn't the only thing that they looked at either. They looked at quality of life and cardiorespiratory fitness, which can also be generalised to other age groups. Thanks, Tegan. We'll talk later in the show. Talk then. One of the mysteries surrounding COVID-19, the disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2, is why some people experience severe life-threatening disease and others don't. Age, male gender and having other problems like diabetes, heart and lung disease and probably obesity are risk factors. But what about individual differences in people's immune systems? Well, two recent studies have found that to be the case in a significant percentage of people with serious COVID-19 disease. One study looked for genetic patterns and found an effect on immune messengers called interferons. There are about 18 interferons in the body and they act like volume controls and orchestra conductors in the immune system once it's been alerted to an attack by a virus. The second study found antibodies against interferon in some people. This has huge implications for a better understanding of the immune system, not to mention more targeted therapies for people with COVID-19. Professor Paul Herzog is one of Australia's leading experts on interferons. Paul is head of the Centre for Innate Immunity and Infectious Disease at the Hunsett Institute in Melbourne. This study, initiated by Jean-Laurent Casanova, who's based at the Rockefeller and Helen Sue at NIH, they've set up actually a global network looking for patients who might uh, have genetics as predispositions to getting extremely ill with the COVID SARS-CoV-2 virus. And this is really the first output of that global network of people who are doing the searches. So firstly, it's really the first substantial report that there's a genetic susceptibility to this disease. It's something we always suspected. But this really proves it. And more particularly, what is unusual and fascinating is that most of the culprits they found were actually lying in different components of the interferon signaling system. They found a relatively consistent genetic problem in people when they looked at their genes. And these genes seem to code for the interferons in some shape or form. Yes, they identified 12 genes that we knew were involved in susceptibility to infections, particularly respiratory infections. And they, they happen to be in the interferon pathway, but involved in the production of it 
or the response to it. And so they really looked, you know, where the light was and they said, well, can we find deficiency in any of these 12 genes? They actually found deficiencies in quite a high proportion of patients. There are about 3% of them. So I'm sure there are many more to uncover because this was really just a very targeted look. So 3% doesn't sound too high. With a million people dying, I think it's a lot of human beings, isn't it? And I think it is just the tip of the iceberg. People have been talking about interferons now for a while. In fact, interferons have been trialled as a treatment for people with COVID-19 disease, even prior to these studies coming out. What's the net effect of these genetic abnormalities or these genetic differences? I suppose what they might enable us to do, Norman, is to use what you would call a precision medicine approach where we can identify people who would benefit and who would not benefit from this. So, for example, if a person has a defect, which means they're unable to respond to interferon, and some of these genes are involved in that, it's absolutely pointless giving them administration interferon therapeutically because they just would not be able to respond. On the flip side, if we identify patients who, who can't make it and some of the genes are involved in the making of the interferon, then they are more likely to benefit from therapeutic administration of interferon. So where does this research go next? Is it presumably a simple test or what? I think that's a simple test. As I said, I think it might enable us to identify groups of patients who are likely to respond to interferon and those who don't. And if we can talk for a minute about the other paper, which involves the identification of autoantibodies to interferon, that's probably, in fact, a far more fascinating study because, you know, autoantibodies, some of your listeners might recognise, are usually associated with autoimmune diseases like lupus where something goes wrong with the immune system instead of recognising a foreign antigen, it turns on itself. And these sort of rogue antibodies can cause disease. So what they found in their second study was that 10% of the patients they looked at, which is a staggering number really, produced antibodies to these type 1 interferons and would negate its effect. That population of patients you know, won't be able to respond I mean, that has a number of implications. Secondly... Uh, so, so before you get to the implications, and, and yeah. is the assumption that the autoantibodies pre-existed the infection or were created by the virus? Their study was nearly a 1,000 patients, so there were probably about 100 of them that they found these autoantibodies. I think in about 10 or 12 of them, they had the opportunity in the samples there to look before they were had obvious signs of disease and some of them did have pre-existing antibodies. But that's just a small proportion of those patients, and I think it needs a much bigger study, but it tells us that some of them certainly can predate. And that's interesting for a number of reasons, because it identifies an underlying condition that we never would have thought of. And the other thing is those patients had no previous signs of other respiratory or susceptibility to viral infections, which you know, raises the question whether this is fairly specific to COVID-19. And it also asks, asks, raises a question which a lot of people, at least to my coronacast podcast, ask. If I've got rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis or scleroderma or SLE, one of the other autoimmune diseases, does it make me more susceptible to COVID-19? Do any of the other autoantibodies that are around in the community affect interferons in this way? A really interesting question that has complicated answers. And the answers are yes and no. There are some autoimmune conditions where similar autoantibodies to interferons have been seen. But there are others like lupus where the opposite seems to happen. In lupus, it seems a large part of the disease is driven by interferon. And in fact, there was a large trial headed by an Australian clinician from Monash, uh, Eric Morand, last year 
that identified blocking antibodies to interferon that actually looked like they will have beneficial effects in lupus. So that's quite the opposite effect. And so this discovery of autoantibodies, which might actually be quite significant in a reasonable percentage of people, is there a therapy there? Good question. Not obviously. It probably may lie, again, if you're thinking interferon therapy, it clearly wouldn't work unless you can there's some specificity in the antibodies that you could get around. I think there are ways of screening it out. I mean, for example, you wouldn't want the samples of those serum in your convalescent serum preparation. So I think there are practical outcomes like that. Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, that's right. So if you're taking serum <laughs> for these people to give to other people and you're giving them more to antibodies, you can make them worse. Right. Yeah, so it's another screening test for that. You know, there are B-cell and antibody depletion therapies that are used in other autoimmune diseases, and that might be an area that could be looked at in these patients. So what's next for your research, given all this? Well, it provides us with an opportunity. I mean, for us, it's yet another example of the importance of the interferon system. We're currently collaborating with Jean-Laurent Casanova in a number of these mutations prior to COVID, and we'll continue that. What we'll do is sort of drill down to try and find out the mechanism whereby some of these mutations in the interferon system are working. And in fact, whether some of them that haven't yet been identified as loss of function and disease contributing might in fact be so. Paul, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Professor Paul Herzog is head of the Centre for Immunity and Infectious Disease at the Hudson Institute in Melbourne. Quite interesting, don't you think, Tegan? Fascinating. Yeah, it tells you quite a lot about what we don't know about the immune system. Anyway, for our Health Report podcast listeners, we go to our questions that people are sending into healthreport at abc.net.au. What questions have we got without notice today? Well, let me just unlace the mailbag and pull out the first one, which is from John, who's asking about a recent article from the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is describing screening mammography as a waste of time. What's your take on that, Norman? So this study, it's by a couple of researchers who've been pushing this for some time. And there is a debate about breast screening and the risk of overdiagnosis and has it really helped. The core argument here is, well, if you look at the introduction of breast screening, it occurred around about the same time as what's called adjuvant therapy for early invasive breast cancer. So adjuvant therapy, if you're postmenopausal, it's uh, it involves hormone treatment. If you're premenopausal, I'm actually doing a sweeping generalization here because they can do much more specific therapies. It's chemotherapy and maybe radiotherapy as well. And what they're arguing is if you look at the data, they say it's not the screening that's made the difference in improved survival from breast cancer. It's the treatment of the early breast cancer that's actually made the difference. And they're taking their data from Victoria. Now, the problem with data from Victoria is the cancer registry is fine. It registers people who've got a diagnosis of, of cancer. But it's not a treatment registry, or at least for many years it's not been a treatment registry. The state with the best treatment registry is actually New South Wales. So they're not taking their data from the same source. So they're taking the data on treatment of women in Victoria for early breast cancer, but it's not closely tied with the screening data. And when you look elsewhere around the world, including New South Wales, there is an effect of screening on survival, and that is about... 25 to 30%. It's about the same as bowel cancer screening. And yes, there is an effect of treatment, hard to measure. And also, there's been a drift in terms of women's health and well-being. So women are uh, living longer and they're living longer healthier. And so that has an effect as well. And yes, there is an issue of what's called interval cancers. 
So what screening does not do very well is pick up cancers that might happen between your screening mammograms. And interval cancers are often very aggressive, very fast moving, and they're quite advanced when you pick them up. So between your mammograms. And that confuses the story about screening. So, I mean, if I was a woman, I would be having breast screening because I, I'm convinced that there is evidence that it reduces mortality. There is a bit of overtreatment because there are some women who've got what's called carcinoma in situ. And for some of those women, their cancer would not have progressed. But the problem is we don't know which women they are. So there is a degree of overtreatment. But overall, the data are pretty good that breast screening does save lives. So it's not a waste of time. So don't check out breast screening just yet. No. Sorry it took me so long to explain the technical side behind the technical detail behind that, that study, but it needs it to actually get through. Yeah, you need that context. Um, we've got a question from, well, more of a comment from Angie, who's an optometrist, saying, thank you, Norman, for sharing your experience with retinal detachment and highlighting the symptoms and the urgent emergency care that's needed in that situation. And Angie's saying, if you think you've got that, come and see an optometrist directly because they're able to examine the retina more extensively than a GP and can confirm and triage those patients so that they get faster specialist care. I think that's true. I mean, the examination of the retina for a retinal detachment is quite specialised. And what the GP has got is usually an ophthalmoscope. And the ophthalmoscope is usually for seeing what the state of the vessels are at the back of the eye or whether or not there's a bulge in the optic disc. But not easy to actually find a detachment. For, to find a detachment, you've, got to, you've actually got to stand back with a funny little lens and have a look at the eye. And it's highly specialised to really see. And you've got to push the eye. It's actually a bit uncomfortable. You've got to push mm. the eye around and manipulate it to just see whether or not there is a detachment there. And that's highly specialised examination, which, with all due respect to GPs, unless they've had a specific ophthalmology training, they probably don't have. And yet, an optometrist would give you some screening there to be able to refer you on to a retinal surgeon or your local eye hospital to, or eye casualty to be seen further. And a question from Lois wanting to unpack a little bit. We were talking about antioxidants a couple of weeks ago and how good they are for the body. And Lois says, can you explain why we need antioxidants when we depend so completely on oxygen? Well, dependence is a great question. And by the way, when we were talking about antioxidants, we were not talking about antioxidant supplements. We were talking about the Mediterranean diet and the plethora of natural antioxidants that occur in the Mediterranean diet because you have foods interacting with each other during the cooking and cuisine process and you get an amplification of natural antioxidants. Why do we need them? Well, essentially we have a deal with the devil over oxygen. So we need oxygen to live. But oxygen also gets metabolized and broken down into oxygen atoms and species called free radicals. And they are highly damaging and they attach themselves to tissues and damage tissues when they, they hit them. And it's one of the causes of aging. It may be related to cancer, maybe related to dementia and so on. So free radical damage is one of the side effects of us relying on oxygen. Is it a little bit like rusting? Like yeah. if iron is exposed to oxygen, it rusts. Is that what's happening to our body? Are we rusting from the inside out? Yes, it's exactly right. It's, I call it biological rusting. <laughs> and, that, and therefore we have this system. So it's, it's called oxidative stress. And we have complicated systems in the body to guard against oxidative stress. 
and part of that comes from the microbiome and it also comes from absorbed chemicals in your nutrition and your in the nutrients in the food and there are also natural systems in the body. So that's why it, essentially the body has had to develop systems to prevent oxidative stress, which is a side effect of oxygen. So just on that, Jackie's asking about this as well, a question about the Mediterranean diet, which, you know, we've talked about has a lot of health benefits. But Jackie's been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and she's got a low FODMAP diet, which I might let you unpack a little bit, Norman, but some of the foods in that are from the Mediterranean diet and she can't metabolise them anymore. What does she do? It's interesting to know whether or not she needs to know whether the FODMAP diet, which is um, it's a subject all on its own. Maybe we'll come back to that next week. But essentially, they've looked at common irritants, nutrient type irritants that might affect the bowel and cause intolerance. And they found that in some people, it does help irritable bowel syndrome. The evidence is a bit iffy on that, but it's very popular. And some people swear by the FODMAP diet. Look, you can still do the elements of the Mediterranean diet. The elements of the Mediterranean diet that count here are not a lot of red meat. The protein that you eat tends to be fish or poultry. The way that you cook... Or lentils or, or yeah. pulses. Yes, yeah. and, but that they may well be involved in the FODMAP or various uh. versions of the FODMAP diet. You don't necessarily have to have lentils or pulses. But greens, fresh greens, cooking with herbs... You know, if you don't like onions or garlic and you can't tolerate them, then there are plenty of other herbs that you can use that you need to experiment with. But a lot of it is about a plant-based diet with low red meat and fish and poultry being your other sources of protein and slow cooking and tomato bases to your cooking as well. So if you can tolerate those, you're probably going to get the, most of the benefit from a Mediterranean-style diet. So garlic and onions aren't essential to getting the benefits. No, it's a nice add-on. Well, that's about everything that I was going to ask you about today. But if you want to ask Norman a question or me, send us an email, healthreport at abc.net.au. Yep, come back to us on HIT, high-intensity interval training, and we'll have Tegan answer them. Exactly. See, see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.